today we have an outstanding uh, episode ahead for you please welcome kurti barucha i think for me i'm so proud of just being an indian 2020 was our breakout year we didn't have budget cuts we did not lay off anyone our program scaled incredibly we were running i guess 400 schools what drk's due diligence process helped us do was actually to really clarify our model so we said at the heart of what we do is improved student engagement There's one thing that I always live by, which is, what if I get hit by a bus tomorrow? With CEOs, a whisper becomes a scream. I actually have to weigh my words more carefully than I thought I did. This is like a pressure cooker situation, and I cannot blow up because there are too many people dependent on me, including my son. As a woman founder who is a mom, also a solo founder, it's damn hard. Hi, uh, welcome to the Barber Shop. Today we have an outstanding uh, episode ahead for you. Uh, someone i personally admire tremendously uh, she's a very close friend and is a founder of people um, and something that i love talking to her about is you know her life choices that got her to starting something in the non-profit space focus on education uh, please welcome kurti barucha welcome kurti and it's such a privilege to be in the barber shop with you thank you for making the time thank you shantanu lovely to be here I finally got invited. <laughs> But did you like how many sari choices did you go through before saying, "Hey, I love, I love that you wear sari." I think it's the nature of the job. You have to work with government and so on. You're all in a sari a lot, at least what I see on LinkedIn and photos. So did Barber Shop bring out the best sari? No, no. I just love wearing saris. So I think from my first job, I just, I just find it really elegant. I just, I just really like the outfit. I feel like there's a lot of grace in the sari and. Uh, so it's not really a part of my job, but <laughs> I've worn it for a while, and I think I always used to be that girl who wears saris. Then, yeah. uh, always known as that person who wears saris and who wears nice saris. <laughs> so, for barbershop, I thought about it, and I was like, okay, it's with you, yeah. right? So it needs to be informal. I'm not going to wear my silk sari and come on the show. No, no, for sure. I, did did having a mother who was a civil servant, senior IS officer, I'm sure she would be a Uh, someone who kind of carried the sari beautifully as well. Did that? Did she role model for you in 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 you know in a world where, uh, where where it carried power? Yeah, I think not so much the sari itself, but she was very similar. So, you know, I we moved to the U.S. when I was about four. So she, you know, had a posting in New York. So from the time I was four till the time I was twelve, I basically did primary school in Manhattan, right and. She was very distinctive in her manner because she was, you know, she used to wear a sari, and uh, it's unusual. No, a lot of people who move to the U.S. they immediately will, you know, take out their pants and their the trousers and and everything else. And I think it was just who she was, right? and she felt very comfortable in her skin. So she was actually not part of the IES. So I both my parents have PhDs in economics. Right? Okay. So. They are both economists, so she kind of went in laterally okay. into the government, um, and she was a very senior woman professional in the government. And there were many other IS officers who she was working with day in and day out, right? And so, I think through her, I got a real understanding of what it means to actually work and embed deeply in government systems. But also in '91, she was. Very involved when liberalisation was happening. She was very involved with the export-import policy. She was in the Ministry of Commerce, and so I also saw policy making up close and personal. Right. So I think she was definitely someone who was, you know, is incredibly sharp. Uh, 
incredibly capable, has high expectations, right? So there is a lot to live up to, and you've met her. So but recently, and I, I, I'm a big. Uh, I can imagine what kind of an impact she would have had on you growing up, and you know, even even as an adult. Yeah, I think my dad and mom had very different styles, right? My mom uh, is very driven, then you know. Um, high expectations high expectations oriented my dad was a lot more calm you know a little more go with the flow and so it was a nice compliment i guess growing up right? yeah. but and you you do, you do not have any siblings no. but it's all a, it's it's a it's a lot of pressure right uh to actually you know live up to that high bar it's very similar not similar but kind of i can relate to it a lot in the sense of growing up in the us having you know parents like parents who you look up to a lot because they're socially considered to be high achieving and but at home they're still your mom and dad right but when you see others interact with them in the family or in their friends circle you can see that they're very respected so you feel like you need to live up to something and then it comes out in the way you are at school with your friends you always i don't know whether it's inadequate is the right word but you always feel like there's more to do and that there's a lot more to live up to otherwise it may not be worthwhile I think it was just I mean I think as a child also right I probably put a lot of pressure on myself I think I continue to I think I'm my harshest critic right so yeah there were high expectations but I don't think there was pressure um I think there was clarity in the fact that academics were incredibly important to succeed so my mother comes from a very educated background both my parents have done their PhDs and so always for me education was scored right like it was so critical economics is like your family business family business <laughs> right <laughs> so was was that dinner time dinner table conversation so we never talked about it at home okay. never okay. we never talked about economics at home because i think um i think it it's also that thing right where you you never you probably don't realize the value of what you have at home right and so um the economics i was doing then occasionally they would provide input and then you're like no no but you don't know what i'm doing because i'm actually doing something completely different in in school right uh, and of course they've been through it and then syllabus changes and all of that stuff so you don't fully you know so so we we, we didn't talk about we didn't talk about it at home except the exposure that i used to get from my mom working in the government and during liberalization and just now i look back and i think of all her colleagues that i met who were all extremely influential during the liberalization right and you know you get to meet them up close and personal and you see them for the people that they are uh, and then you realize much later that they were very you know they were very instrumental in the way that india liberalized yeah um so it's kind of cool to look at it that way right? no, kind of interesting i completely agree i think i'm going to i was just thinking that um, people who are going to watch us are like hey a woman has come on the show and the first thing you start with is our clothes and i i, I must disclaim that i've like i've publicly been a fan of your saree and given our friendship is so close and for a few years it's something that comes up a lot so guys there's context to this but tell me about also to be fair i did ask you what i should wear on the yes show. please please let me <laughs> so also, it's not your fault right <laughs> so i think you look you're looking amazing and i i i agree i think it is something that is become rarer and rarer now in the professional setup like we have almost i don't know whether you saw the office half our office is women um and it's not a formal office so i, I you might want to discount it a little bit by saying the men are not wearing shorts and trousers or formal wear uh but i think more people wear kurtas than women wear sarees in our office yeah yeah i think so but you know even in your office no shantanu i've like met with a couple of your colleagues who are women right uh, both of them said oh 
I love the fact you're wearing a sari. Yeah. I wish I could wear one. Correct. Right? And it's just, I, I think everybody appreciates it yeah. or everybody wants to. And I think for me, I'm so proud of just being an Indian yeah. that I feel like it's a very Indian thing. Yeah. And so I, is, it, is it comfortable? Yeah, I am very comfortable. But I think a lot of people are not used to wearing it. So they're not comfortable. In summers, especially, it gets hot. and. <laughs> <laughs> You wear cotton. Yeah, you wear cotton. Yeah, I agree. But uh, coming to coming to you know coming to people, and I want to I want to kind of probe more on. I will talk about what kind of took you from London School of Economics to McKinsey to World Bank to you did a bunch of things before you started People. Which year was this? Two thousand seventeen. It's been six years running. I can't believe. It. Uh, is it been six years? Yeah. Yeah, twenty seventeen till now. Six. Wow. You were taking your six years. I moved to the education sector in 2014. Okay. So that's why education sector, may it's been a decade now. Yeah. No, I mean it's crazy. Yeah. The way time has flown. Right. And also, I think COVID, those three years of COVID, kind of is a haze, right? So those three years, you can discount, but still. No, but we grew. We we that like 2020 was our breakout year. Right. Yeah. The way that we pivoted our programs. Uh-huh. And the way that we grew as an organization, I'm so proud of that because we did not, you know, we didn't have budget cuts. We did not lay off anyone. Um, our program scaled uh, incredibly. We were running, I guess, you know, 400 schools. Or not running. Take a step back and tell us what people does. No, no, you're, you're right. I would love to come on to this, but for someone listening in who probably does not know people, what was it in 2017 that you wanted to do? And then, how has that built out over the last six years, including the stuff that you kind of were talking about? Should I go way back to why yeah, after yeah, the sector? Yes, absolutely. We can go back to twenty fourteen if you want. It's your show. Okay. <laughs> uh, so let me start there, right? Because I think it's very important for somebody who works potentially in the social impact space, given how challenging the sector is, and given how critical the problems are, you really have to bring everything. To the sector, right, or to the work that you do. Um, so in two thousand nine, my son Siddharth was born. Thank you, Mr. Sidhu. Um, and two thousand nine, he was actually born about six weeks premature, right? So I had just moved back from the US in two thousand nine. Was it Delhi? Delhi in Gurgaon. Okay. So I had just moved back to uh, India. I was working at corporate executive board, which is now Gartner. Okay. Uh, moved back to India to head their finance and strategy practice in India. Uh, soon after coming here, found out I was pregnant. So had hardly found a place to actually live. Right. Okay. Still looking for rented accommodations. In the middle of that, you find out you're pregnant. You don't know a gynecologist. I hadn't lived in India for probably eight years. Right. So I had no network. Right. And so suddenly you're like, okay, fine. Now to deal with new job, new title, new location, and then baby coming. Wow. So four big variables. Huge. Right? And and but you you know that's life, right? You kind of figure it out. But um, you're never fully, fully prepared for you. You there is no manual for how to be a parent, right? And so, you know, you kind of just hope that you, know, you prod along and you hope that everything ends up okay. But um, I guess a six month or so started having trouble with the pregnancy, right? Yeah, and so Sidhu was actually born about a month and a half early, and the first two years of his life he had tremendous. So when he was born, he was in the Neonatal ICU for about ten days. He didn't cry when he was born. He had major respiratory issues. So the first two years of his life, every month we were in and out of the pediatric ICU, you know. And there was one time when he was three or four months old that 
you know, he just suddenly had a seizure. I was holding him in my arms and I couldn't feel his heartbeat. Right? I could not, I mean, you know, when you, when you do this with your finger, your blood, your blood stops and then you do this and then the blood comes back. I did that. I was just pain, right? And it happened twice that day. And the first time it happened, we called the doctor and then, you know, the doctor said, okay, fine, is he stable now? I said, yes. And then it happened again that day. And so this continued for two years or so, right? So it's incredibly stressful, but there's nothing you can do. You just take it one day at a time, right? And you're not in control of anything. And so you realize, you know, you just have to take every day as it comes. But I think once his health stabilized, when he was about three years old or so, um, we then put him into school. And, uh, you know, at school, I realized the first couple of teachers he had identified, you know, he has milestone delays and, you know, you should get some assessments done. You should do X, Y, and Z. Uh, and of course, it's stressful for a new parent, right? You just about come to terms with the fact that your child has overcome all these health issues. And then suddenly you have the whole world putting expectations on your child. And as a first time parent, you don't know whether or not your child is on track or not. And it is very worrying if you feel like the child is not going to be able to keep up with the rest of the class, right? Because you feel they'll be judged and so on. And um, and so we then ended up doing therapy, we did assessments, all of that stuff. And it was relentless, right? And then when he was about five or so, and he was in, so this is all like, this is not even full school, right? This is like pre-nursery, right? And the child is already being judged and evaluated. What kind of milestone? I, I know I've heard this a lot from new, new parents who measure this a lot. I don't I don't think when we grew up, it was that much of a thing. I don't know. I think our parents probably didn't focus on it so much. And there were larger families, right? Uh, so every, like, grandmothers were more involved and all of that stuff. And they're like, huh, it's okay. Put, put, put it in. Yeah, yeah non-nuclear families. Yeah, so it's more, and then there's more pressure on the parents. And so by the time he went to kindergarten, I think he, um, I by then was kind of, okay, he's going to have milestone delays. You know, we'll support him the best he can, etc. And then in his kindergarten class, he had this amazing teacher who, you know, she called us for a parent-teacher meeting. And I went with dread, right, wondering, oh my gosh, now what? You know, because every time I went to a parent-teacher meeting, there was going to be some news which was going to be like just heartbreaking, right? And she said, you know, Siddharth's doing really well. And I show his work to the other kids and look at what he's done. And she had such pride in her fa on her face and... I knew that he was in good hands with her. And I think that for me was the moment where I could see the difference that a teacher made in a child's life, right? How in Delhi, in Gurgaon. Gurgaon. And transformative, right? And for a parent, suddenly I was like, I am amazed that you see his potential because as his mother, I watch him every single day. I see the moments and I know what he's capable of, right? And I don't want a school to write him off. I don't want a teacher to write him off. And here you are, who's recognized this child's potential and is actually going to help him succeed. And I think that time for me, professionally, I was just up for a promotion and, you know, was on track to kind of hit the near next career ladder. And for me at that point, I think my passion for education was always there on the back burner, but I had never fully figured out how to make a difference to society or back to education, right? And I think when all of these things kind of started happening at the same time, I was like, you know, with Siddhu, with my own child, I've had the resources, I'm able to offer him good health facilities, I'm able to get him into a good school. 
and therefore he has a real shot at life and he has a chance to actually achieve his potential but there are so many children in india who just don't receive any opportunity they get written off and it is a crime right imagine there is so much so many siddhus out there who just may get written off may not go to a great school um if they go to a great school and they're not your if they you know if they're lagging in the class and they're not hitting grade level expectations the teacher may not focus on them and therefore they'll continue to lag or they won't understand and i think for me at that time i thought in whatever way i can i want to be able to i've done i've i've tried my best with my own son i want to do whatever i can to prevent this happening to other children in india right and i think that's what made me then say okay i i've now hit a particular professional milestone um i have you know climbed that corporate ladder now either i continue doing this as you know a managing director for the next 5 years because also when you get promoted you you feel very responsible right to the organization and the org's taken a bet with you so you can't just leave him lonely right um so either i do this for the next 5 years or i make a move now right and and i think for me there's one thing that i always live by which is what if i get hit by a bus tomorrow yeah. right constantly i think you've heard me say yeah. i don't know if you have but yeah of course but it's my it's the way i live my life right what if i get hit by a bus tomorrow and i think i asked myself that question and i was like i don't want to lose uh, i don't want to lose more time if i get hit by a bus tomorrow i will look back and i will regret that i didn't do that i didn't make that move to the education sector so i think i was about 34 at the time 33 34 and i thought you know most people do it when they've retired right when they're hitting their 50s or their 60s but i was like when i'm in the prime of my life and in my professional career there is no better time for me to make a difference than now right because this is when i'm at my best this is when i'm at my peak and this is when i should actually be contributing so this was just a few so you, did you have any interactions any work at any of your stint before or was it just motherhood and siddhu that said hey you know what i i need to do something in this space because it's been whatever it take it a few years of yeah so um uh my master's degree was in development studies right um and so development was a core reason to kind of say okay how do i understand inequality and then um when i came back to india um i joined mckinsey and of course mckinsey had uh, i was with the consumer goods and retail practice um and there was a study that was happening with pratham um and pratham at that time was only in mumbai right so they were the, the study at that time and this is 2000 madhav chauhan was heading pratham at that time and uh, in 2000 mckinsey was involved in some amazing work with pratham right But pratham was looking at getting a really high powered board together looking at their pan india strategy how are they going to move from mumbai to then working nationally uh, what was their growth plan going to be and it just, i just kind of because of my background in development i just gravitated to that study so while i wasn't on the study i just got to see the decks and i was like this is so inspiring right what he's been able to build and what pratham has been able to do and then i remember there were a couple of us um who were like okay if we want to get involved we can't do it on the study but let's go and visit and uh, i think madhav had come into the office one day and i was just in awe of what he had been able to do and how he brought such passion to pratham 
uh, so I went to Chandni Chowk to visit a couple of their uh, remedial centers, right? And there were these young women who had just finished college before getting married, who were teaching, and the children were learning so well. And I think that just always stayed with me, right? The transformative power of that young girl and how she was able to actually teach that child effectively, right? So that Pratham study was a big one. And then there were just a lot of signs from the universe. So I went from McKinsey to the World Bank. And uh, I went to the World Bank and I was working with their main economics unit, right? It was called PREM. It was policy, um, policy reform and economic management. But it was working on large fiscal adjustment programs, structural adjustment programs in different states. And I was working on Uttar Pradesh. Um, and the education, so I was like, okay, let's find out what the education sector is doing. So the education sector colleagues were so much fun. Yeah. They were like the, they were like the cool kids, you know, <laughs> for me at least. I don't know if they were the cool kids, but for me, they were the cool kids. And the person who was heading the education practice at the World Bank, Vinita Kaul, was also on the board of Pratham, right? So I was like, oh, wow. So there's a Pratham connection here also. And then I stayed in touch with Madhav and so I was a bank. I was um, going off and like, you know, attending the Delhi chapter of Pratham meetings and then occasionally meeting Madhav and helping him with decks and things like that. And and so that was kind of the beginning for me, right? In terms of my exposure to education. Um, and then when I was in DC, when I was working there, I had tried to help set up the Pratham DC chapter. Mm. But so I think for me, Education at that time, and Pratham was one of the only organizations in the 2000s that was really working on deeply on education and then also looking at scale, right? So you started hearing a lot more about Pratham. But then when I wanted to shift to the education sector, I knew nothing about the education sector, right? I'd spent like eight years abroad and was in the corporate sector, came back and I'd heard of Teach for India and I'd heard of Pratham Correct. and I knew nobody else, <laughs> right? So then I have to like do my research because first of all, I have no skills, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have, I think I have skills, but yeah. those are different types of skills. Correct. I don't know what skills the education sector needs, Correct. right? Um, I don't know what kind of a job I will get, what kind of positions are there. I don't know what orgs look like in terms of their culture, right? Because I was also coming from a very fast-paced role, which was extremely diverse and working across geographies. And I was like, I don't know whether I will... I don't know how nonprofits work. I don't know their operating model, right? So I need to find an org that I will be able to really uh, fit with, right? And that I will be able to work at pace with. Right? Uh, yeah. So then, so that's where the journey started. So I went with kind of clean slate and I just kept asking people, right? Like, can you help me understand? And at that point, I, I think I had kind of decided that my preference was education, but, you know, education or health were both pretty important, right? Okay. Um, so then, you know, just basically talked to a bunch of people, talked to a couple of search firms, said, here's my passion, here's my interest, this is what I want to do. Um, do you have anything? Do you know if any organizations are looking? And yeah, I think that's how it all started. Wow. What happened after that? So, um, and how long did it take for you to say, okay, this is what I want to do next? Um, so I was in no hurry to leave, uh, but it took me about... Um, I guess six to nine months to actually be able to land on what I wanted to do. Okay. Right. Um, so there is a UK based charity called ARC, right, which uh, was looking at, you know, 
uh, how to think about the charter school model and think about how that would operate in a country like India, right? Um, and charter schools have had mixed success in the US and in the UK, uh, but ARC has had phenomenal results in terms of the turnaround of schools and the kind of transformation they've been able to bring about. And these are, you know, the kids that come to the ARC schools are not screened in any way, right? So these are schools where there's absolutely no screening. So there's no, you know, creamy layer that goes to the charter schools. There's no selection that happens. Um, and so it was very inspiring. But then when I met with a bunch of folks at ARC, I think I just felt so good about the people that I met because I felt they were all um, extremely competent, extremely smart, uh, very fast-paced, and they were just working on exactly the kind of issues that I wanted to work on. And so when I looked at the job description, I was like, if I could have written a job description myself, this is what I would have written for myself. And so that's how it happened. And you spent like two, three, two and a half years there. Yeah, yeah. So that was a that was a couple of years. And what were what were the highlights there? What were your what is your main charter for yourself? And like, how did that kind of move into starting people? Because I I want I want to kind of get to the journey from there to there. So Arc was you know charter schools have had networks of excellence, right? So you know charter schools have essentially been you know you look at creating exemplars and you look at you know, showing the transformation that's possible. Um, but you've not really seen so many examples of charter schools at scale, right? Um, and I think as I was... Um, what exactly working, the charter school just define that? So a charter school is where you may have, you know, for example, a government, you may have a government school that's operating and the operations of that, and it may be a failing school where, you know, outcomes, learning outcomes are not particularly strong, uh, children are not meeting grade level expectations. Simply take a decision to say, okay, fine, we're going to transfer the operations of the school. That gives a lot of autonomy to the charter school operator to actually bring around that turnaround. So, so charter schools. So you can imagine that charter schools are extremely intensive, right? Because it's almost like you take on an entire school of let's say a thousand children. You have to then completely turn around the learning outcomes in that school, right? but it's intensive to work in one particular school. Like if you look at schools, you know, in Delhi today, it takes a lot of work to run one excellent private school, yeah. high-end private school. And so if you think of charter schools, imagine doing you know, 10 of those or 20 of those and making sure that each has the same look and feel, right? So the intensity of that. It's very challenging to think about what scale looks like, right? Because scale in India for education is 1.1 million schools, million government schools, right? You've got about 140 to 150 million children studying in 1.1 million schools, Correct. right? So 10 schools is a drop in the ocean, right? 100 schools is a drop in the ocean, right? So the big question was, you can create an excellent example of what is possible in a government school setting. How are you going to scale that? Scale it, yeah. Right? How are you actually going to embed that into the government school system so that the government school system can actually transform? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, or if and if you can't, then you're just creating a parallel system. Yeah. Which is a parallel system, right? And how sustainable is that going to be? You're just going to need a lot of time, money, effort to create that parallel system. And it just it doesn't there are no particular economies of scale that you can hit, right? Correct. Each school costs a certain amount of money to run. You have to fundraise if you increase the number of your schools. 
um, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and, and, but the, but the most important thing is that you have a government administrative machinery, you have budget, you have resources. So wouldn't that money be much better spent in actually co-designing and co-implementing with the government to improve the quality of delivery in government schools Correct. rather than actually running a parallel system? Correct. Right. So for us, what happened is for me, I kept getting asked, okay, well, what does scale mean? You know, how are you going to achieve this at scale? And I think that's the question that I kept getting asked. Correct. And for me, uh, that was what kept me up at night. And I wasn't sure how to make that happen, right? Um, and so when when we kind of set up people, I think the first thing we had to do was actually determine what scale was going to look like for us, right? Really try and answer that question. How are we going to work with government? Uh, are we going to work with teachers? Are we going to work with school leaders? Are we going to run schools? You know, what does sustainability look like? Um, we had very limited funding, right? Uh, very limited funding. But before we come to that, like, you wanted to work with the government to at scale create impact for learning outcomes in government on schools. Was that was that was was the initial vision that broad? Yeah. Because you want so you're saying motherhood and seeing Sidhu go through things as a high end rising corporate executive, followed by learning that unscalable models in education don't really work until you work with places where the capital is. I agree completely. But those are the two two data points that said, okay, I want but then did you say, okay, I want to do this for kids under the age of nine or I want to do this in in economically uh, weaker parts of government schooling. So like, did you did you choose a where to play or did you just say, hey, this has to be broad and then we'll figure out how to how to kind of start everything. I just knew the problem was immense. Right. I was like, I just want to help as many kids as I can. Right? Learn better. Yeah. Learn better. Right. There are 140, 150 million kids in India studying in government schools. Right. That's the size of the problem that we're dealing with. So how many, how many schools can I impact was the question. Right. And where can I stop? Because you don't want to just scale for scale's sake. Right. You want to scale with impact. And that's the toughest Correct. thing to do. Correct. Right. Um, but very early on, when we did set up people, that was a big bet that we took, which was to say, and that was a conscious bet that, bet that we took with our board to say, you know, there are different paths to scale. We can maybe run our own schools and create exemplar schools and show what's possible. And there's great power in having demonstration schools. Correct. Or we can then work on a couple of interventions, uh, which might be in or outside the system. Or we basically say, or we can work with low-cost private schools where a lot of uh, low-income families actually send their children. They're sending them to low-income, low-cost low uh, private schools, right? Where you pay between 500 to 700 rupees a month, right? Um, or we basically say, look, we're going to work and take a bet with working with government school systems. And I think we ultimately discussed and went back and forth a lot. And we said, if we're really serious about scale, then we have to work with government, right? And and the the government is where serious scale is. And it's it may it may require, you know, longer uh, setup time, deeper dress relationships, a different mode of operating. But in principle, as a board, we said, are we taking this bet to say we're going to bet with with this particular approach and this model? And at that point, the answer was yes. And once we landed on that answer, then it was a question of okay, how do we make this happen? 
who is the initial team and like how did you get to this like this crystallized point of view that this is what you want to do 140 million kids work with the government make sure learning outcomes are measured and that they are high quality and we start with one and then move on but was it just you working with a few things how how did that initial thinking happen we had this incredibly inspiring education director urmila choudhury right uh she has been she's incredibly humble right so she introduces herself as a teacher despite all of the other amazing things that she has done uh she was a educator uh school leader at uh shidab school uh she then worked with you know many other non-profits she um um she was my conscience she was the person on the team the person on the leadership team who had the wisdom to actually lean in and say okay reality check because i'm not an educationist right i've never i've never taught except for maybe one year somewhere uh between school and college uh, when i was like assistant teacher <laughs> non serious <laughs> kind of serious yeah. but <laughs> i think it is i don't know i'm sure um, i'm sure but not nothing compared to what you were doing compared to so i mean urmila 20 years of experience as an educator right and i think she was the person that i relied on to actually help me understand how we were going to approach this massive problem right and then our board was incredible right so we've got uh vibha parthasarthi on our board abha adams on our board again very eminent educators right who were actually there to actually give us some deep practitioner experience and some grounding but then i think you you started this solo right or you got everyone to how did you get all of this all of them together all these like every time i see people and the work you do i see you have like a massive backing of some really world class people and as a founder i think one of the things people always talk about is how do you kind of create followership amongst truly exceptional people how did you do that in 2017 2018 in initial days when when visions are not super crystallized and so so with urmila it was like love at first sight okay right we were going through of you know interviews with many different education director candidates all coming from very different background when you say we who was that you and who were sorry ha okay <laughs> i don't know why you keep saying we i'm asking about how you found it and you're like we or 25 people i said something called love you just left something to start and how did you suddenly get to 25 people because that was when we had not made but sorry go ahead you were looking we were already supporting a school okay we were already supporting a school so we had some teachers and we had folks on on staff that were actually already you know supporting um, a school i think when when i met urmila i came out of that room just saying yeah she is the one i i used that exactly like, i was like she's the one she's yeah. the right one and so i think it was like that with her right and once you have you know a trusted partner on that journey with you and you have an initial set of people who are there on the team to kind of get things going then i think i just shamelessly asked people for help right so uh somya rajan our first board member mm. i had met her in a completely different setting right uh she was on the board of another non-profit and that's how i met her because uh we were talking about that non-profit and she and i really i i just i really liked her right um i don't know if she liked me back joshua <laughs> <laughs> uh but i she's on our board right on our board joshua joshua but uh with somya i one of the things that she used to say 
at that time was um you know she continued to be on the board of that non-profit and i said you know somya as as we think about this entity and spinning off and working at scale and all of that i'd really love to continue to benefit from your advice and support um would it be okay if i kind of kept reaching out to you and she used the word we need to make sure that the center of gravity and the decision making for the organization happens in a way that you are able to scale with the benefit of guidance and uh impact right and i think that word that phrase center of gravity just making sure that we were able to create the right center of gravity for those decisions is something that stayed with me and so as i kind of cop- talked to her a couple of times and i was like so you know one of the things i'll need is a board <laughs> no. would it be okay <laughs> Would you be comfortable? Would you have the time <laughs> to join the board? And I was expecting a no, right? Because who are we then, right? Um, and she said, "Yeah, I'd be happy to help in any way possible." And uh, then after that conversation, and I didn't know what a board member was supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> Never know. You don't know what I'm saying. I have one, right? So one is better than zero, right? <laughs> so the journey has started, right? And uh, there are twenty-five folks on the team who are ready to start this journey, right? And I have Urmila, who is incredibly inspiring, and she knows what she's talking about. And I would trust her with my child any day, right? Uh, that's the kind of amazing educator she is. But um, So the then the kind of ingredients started kind of coming together. This is 2018 now. 2017. This is still 2017. Yeah. So I had to I had I I kid you not. I put into Google because I was like, okay, how does this work? So I think I said something like gan chart for setting up an entity. <laughs> Or how to set up an entity. Wow. And it's not easy, right? It's also it's also mis- because it's so misused. Yeah, I just sort of heard. Yeah, scale, mm-hmm. and people who genuinely want to do it, there's a lot of friction for them. Yeah, which is unfortunate, right? Because then it leads, it ends up taking a lot of your time, right? Because you're making sure that, and you know, when you're well intentioned, you don't want to make an inadvertent mistake, yeah. right? For because you're ignorant about some compliance rule or you know some regulation or some new requirement, right? yeah. and so it's important to stay on top of all of these things. Um, but once Samia came in, came on board, then You know, I was like, okay, now, 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 what do I do? So we have one board member, and and we have me, and we have Urmila, who are also members of the society. The legal entity had already been set up; it was active and all of that stuff. Uh, so then Samia said, well, now put together. So I was like, what do we do about other members of the board, right? And she said, well, now, you know, put together a list of the skills that you need and the competency. Com- com-. She said, don't, don't go for the most famous people. Don't, um, uh. Don't come up with your wish list of you know Mukesh Ambani, you know, etc. etc. Figure out what skills you need on the board, and then find the five best people who are best at that particular skill set. So I was like, okay, clearly I've made the right choice with my first board member. <laughs> Great advice. So uh, we did that, and then in the early days, no. To be honest, Shantanu, I think you're just so grateful when people join the board, right? And you're just like, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> you said yes. Yeah. 
you know, and and you are genuinely because at that point you're a smallish entity. You haven't quite figured out the model. You're still iterating. Um, and then in 2018, uh, Ramesh Srinivasan, senior partner at McKinsey, who you know well, um, Ramesh and I met at uh, JW Marriott and we were catching up after many, many years. I had known him when I was at McKinsey, but we hadn't caught up after he had moved to the US and all of that stuff. And we caught up maybe after 10, 12 years, right? And it was an amazing conversation about education, something he's deeply passionate about. And he's involved with various different education nonprofits. Um, and, you know, at the end of that conversation, so I dropped him off to the airport. And I remember, again, we were just talking about how can you, how can we stay in touch? And I said, you know, well, <laughs> would you be able to join our advisory board? <laughs> and, uh, and he said, yeah, okay. <laughs> or, or something along those lines, right? And I just expect to be a yes. <laughs> because with me, you just need to give me like a partial yes and I'll be like, okay, done. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, bold, yeah. <laughs> That's but, amazing. It's amazing how much happens when you just ask. But, yeah, but, but you know what Ramesh did was to shift my mindset because Ramesh said, um, and then, you know, that was an airport conversation where I was dropping him off in a cab. He was late to his flight and I was like, but you know, I has he has he actually said yes, right? Or <laughs> uh, let me just reconfirm, right? Because what does this mean? Can I actually invite him to board meetings and stuff? Yeah. And uh, you know, then we had a conversation about it on on a phone call, and he said, um, you know, Kruti, I'm just privileged to have been asked. Thank you so much for asking me to be on the board, and that for me was a huge mindset shift. I realized that there was something special that we were building and scaling. And that is that it is actually, you know, a privilege to be on this journey for me, for others who are part of this journey, right? And so I wouldn't need to feel so grateful to ask because this is something special. We've demonstrated impact. We have a really good team. It is actually an honor to be part of this journey. Yeah, so I agree with you. Initial, initial days, for example, when Rikrajitika joined our company, I remember it being a huge favor to ask her to join because we had no money, we had no brand name, we had no office, we had um, nothing really other than four or five months of revenues, one product, and only dreams and sapne. That's all we had, right? So when Ritika and I had the conversation at home, like she she was. Like generally she was kind of, you know, in that typical, you know, I'm getting bored at work or, you know, this is not fun or, you know, I want to do something exciting. And then flip card and not become big, you know. So like the startup thing was like this 2016 was like in the, in the news a lot, but not a lot of us were doing it. So when she said, yes, I'll do it was, was like a big deal. Okay. You know, like people are ready to join you, people who trust you or might think of this as a career or investors to put money or someone to join the board or senior people to join us, etc. It seemed like a big deal. And it was. Honestly, taking a bet early on on people is is, is, is a big deal and you do feel grateful. Uh, but as the years progress, today, for example, I know how much pull we have for senior talent because we're in the news a lot. We're a well-known brand. We are well-funded. We can afford salaries and so on. 
So people who take bets on us now, I don't feel grateful at all. Not that I don't feel grateful. I don't feel grateful in the same way. I don't feel no. I'm I'm glad you accepted an offer to work with us. But I know what we can do for you. And more importantly, I know you know what we can do for you also, which is why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, so it doesn't feel like a favor anymore, in a way. Earlier used to to your question as to whether it has changed for me, it has. But to do it in twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen was a big deal. It's a huge deal. Because people it's also a huge responsibility, right? Correct. Because people are taking a bet with you. Taking a bet with me, right? It's a huge responsibility. Full day. Right? You have to fund salaries. Uh, you have to stay calm. Yeah. Everything else might be collapsing around you, Correct. and you know funding might not be coming in. But you have to be that person who's holding it all together, and you have to have some vision that you can share with others to actually show them the light, right? And the best part is, or the worst part is. You don't know whether you don't know the probability of that vision coming true or not, right? Because so much depends on luck, right? And so much depends on other factors which are out of your control. So you can't say hand on heart that ye pakka ho jayega, <laughs> right? And then imagine in the space, in the education space, there is no revenue source, right? So it's not like you can track milestones, right? It's not like you can track okay, here's how much is going to come in every month, here's the conversion rate, etc. etc. That's not here, right? These are long-term social problems. So you just have absolutely no idea, right? So it's kind of like a hail mary from the get go, right? <laughs> it's like I really hope we can pull this off, and I'm determined that we can pull this off. But at some point, I'm also just taking a bet with myself, myself yeah, right. But I think earlier on, you are betting more on future and much less on track record because there is no track record. As a company, we are now seven years old. I think now people are taking a bet on a combination of hey, I can see potential, but I have seen seven years of this team building something out into it. Which I think, as as you as you grow, you go more and more schools. I think track record plays an important role. But I totally hear you, man. Initial days would have been very very difficult. So how did that? How did how did you guys get it off the ground with like twenty five thirty of you now two three four board members? You obviously have uh, you know a clear. I think a more crystallized vision of what how you're going to create impact. But how did you take it off the ground to reach that that twenty twenty moment where things took off for you? Um. So I think an early part of it was making that bet to work with government systems was a big one, right? Because that was actually a, you know, put your stick in the sand moment and, you know, what is your identity going to be as an organization kind of moment, right? And once we said that, we're like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Then, uh, you know, we we had the schools which had become truly exemplar, you know, we had 85% of children in those schools meeting or exceeding grade level expectations, right? And these children are coming from families where they may be the first generation learners. Average household income is six to 7,000 rupees a month. Um, family of four, right? Uh, so to show that these are grade level expectations that are not, there is no delta reduction for the schools at we were supporting compared to a high-end private school, right? The same grade level expectations, right? And so a lot of the early days was around actually saying, okay, we've created our seeing is believing model, right? Uh, so there's a story of how, you know, the first person that ran the four-minute mile, right? It took a while for that person to actually cross that record. Once he crossed that record, there were 10 people Big. right after him that crossed that record within six weeks, yeah. right? So... 
a lot of it is you get that first breakthrough, you show what's possible, and then you can say, okay, fine, now we have to figure out how to replicate it, yeah. right? But we had the proof points. So this was a huge turnaround, right? We had a lot of people come to see the schools. You know, it had become a hub of just demonstration. So then once we said the bet is around working with government, then we had to start actually figuring out what that would mean at scale, right? So we, we started our first teacher development program, teacher training program, where we were working primarily with government teachers, right? So that was the first step towards saying, okay, we've done this with teachers that we have hired. Now, can we actually support government teachers and train them to adopt the same practices to lead to uh, better classroom outcomes and better learning outcomes for the kids, right? Because you've already lost two spheres of control there, right? That's no longer that the teacher is not responsible or accountable to you. There is no reason why they necessarily have to adopt exactly. those practices. Um, it's an optional training, all of that stuff, right? So we started with that in 2017. And again, you know, it's really just, I think our secret sauce, I mean, there are probably a couple of things, but I think the people that we have had at People have truly, they are truly what has made the organization what it is today, right? So um, our teacher training lead, Sonia, uh, joined in 2017. <laughs> you know, she joined for a particular role, like three months in. She was like, I'm not sure I want to sign up for this, right? <laughs> They, you know, we were like, no, no, if anybody can, you can, <laughs> right? And she was like, okay, talent's accepted. <laughs> and, you know, she made it happen. She then built a team. Uh, we started our teacher training program in, in Delhi. And, you know, from then, we actually saw the change that was able to be brought about and the change in the classrooms that was able to be brought about. And so that happened. And so then you know, slowly momentum starts to build, right? We added a couple more board members. Uh, fortunately, more people said yes. <laughs> um, we had a couple of funding partners come on board. So what that gave us... first check? Uh, Blue Dart. Really? Yeah. And what was, like, what was their uh, reason to believe or reason to do it? Blue Dart Global or Blue Dart India? India. Wow. Okay. I just, they take a bet with you. You know, I think they, at, at many levels, they look into your eyes and they ask, is this person for real? You know, because there are a lot of people out there who can do work. And I think the person who had CSR at the end of the day also has to go by gut and instinct, right? Does this person, do we think this person can do what she is saying she can do? And they hadn't seen the schools. You know, they hadn't visited. So a lot of it was, and you know, the whole CSR funding space also for me was very new, right? Mm -hmm. I, I had never done any of this stuff in the, uh, you know, corporate sector, right? So all, there was so much learning. Most of your fundraising come from CSR or other independent individual No, so what happened then was, uh, you know, we kind of, you know, went along in 20, uh, you know, soldiered on 2018, 2019. Uh, we wanted to see the impact of the teacher training work, continue to strengthen the schools, start thinking about Madhya Pradesh. Also, start learning outcomes take a few years. Yeah, yeah, it does. Start especially child in sixth, fourth yeah. standard. But yeah, yeah, I think exactly. happens in seventh, eighth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because the child also grows, no? So how much of it is due to the school and how much of it is just, you know, natural growth of the child, right? So, um, and we were only doing primary, right? So we're doing KG to five. So the idea is also that if you do foundational literacy and numeracy, 
you're able to actually have a deeper impact because you're getting in at the early years as opposed to uh, remedial education when the child is already in seventh or eighth and they haven't had a strong base then there's so much more to catch up on right and then the likelihood of the child dropping out of school is also much higher so um yeah then we started exploring in madhya pradesh whether we could think about a district transformation effort because uh you know the government of madhya pradesh the principal secretary there the government stakeholders extremely progressive um were you know pioneering and thinking about and very visionary and thinking about a lot of initiatives for education um improvement in the state and so we then said okay fine maybe we should think about a district level approach right and we took on one district identified one district which had about 3000 schools right so we had our you know base operations in delhi with the exemplar schools with the teacher training program and then in madhya pradesh we were all set to start this um new model of district transformation or not new model but our model of saying okay fine we've now done it let's think about how we do this operational approach at a level of uh, a district right and the district in india is madhya pradesh has 53 districts district in india is you know pretty large in terms of geographical range and 3000 schools is quite a lot right um but around that time is when we went to a couple of uh, so we got a couple of grants from other organizations in india and other foundations in india one of them was the nudge um which and we had been selected for their accelerator program uh, and the first year grant was 50 lakhs right but along with that just came a lot of just additional support by way of capacity building networks connections and uh through the accelerator program we were being mentored by a foundation called draper richards kaplan foundation right and this phenomenal managing director at drk uh who was our mentor right and the nudge was very clear this is not a funding relationship that we're setting up for you it's just a mentoring relationship right and i was so grateful because natalie who was the md at that time working with us every conversation with her was incredibly insightful and for me personally very professionally challenging right and she asked me the right questions and stuff like that and then in about two or three months um she said you know we're thinking of actually starting the due diligence process with you to consider whether we'd like to bring you into the portfolio oh, and then i went back to nudge and i was like dude i thought you told me that this is not going to set up funding and this is what this is what they just came back with so is this for real uh-huh. <laughs> and i'm like go for it <laughs> so um, wow. that's what they told us but you know go for it so then we went through the due diligence process of drk which took about 6 months um and you know it's a very intensive process um i think they take somewhere between 15 to 20 organizations every year into the portfolio you know 15 to 20 entrepreneurs every year and you know thousands of applications uh, that come in right so as part of that due diligence process there was a lot of thinking that we had to do in terms of what our fundamental model and approaches right uh, because the question that drk asked us was okay what is your product right what is it that you are trying to do as an organization and an entity right and till then we had parts of the answer to that question but we hadn't definitively said this is our solution right so we hadn't said because the problem again is so holistic yeah, very that, open no right so you have to do many things but if somebody sits you down and says no tell me the two things that you're doing that are going to be transformative the really tough question right like how do i prioritize i think all of these things are needed and it needs some real problem solving and you know brain capacity to actually say we do this but we actually don't do that yeah exactly so what we don't do is just as important 
So the leadership team at that point, we all sat down and, you know, we, we were in our office, like one long weekend fighting with each other, actually saying, okay, what is the model? What is it at the end of the day? That is our solution, right? And, you know, sometimes um, the answer is just common sense, right? So what we, what, what DRK's due diligence process helped us do was actually to really clarify our model. So we said at the heart of what we do is at the, the what of it is improved student engagement. So what's happening in, in many schools is you've got enrollment largely sorted because you have government schools within a two to three kilometer radius. You have midday meals. So, and you've got, you know, um, teachers uh, tracking attendance and cluster and block level officials tracking attendance. Uh, and with the midday meal scholarships and so on, you've made a lot of headway on attendance. Um, kids show up. So kids show up in school and then kids are coming into school because of certain benefits that a government school provides. Now, the piece which, where it's not sufficient is student engagement, right? So how does the teacher and the child meaningfully interact in a way that it actually improves student learning outcomes? What is the process of engagement with the child that the teacher is is doing for you to really learn, yeah. right? And and there is rigor there. It's not just that I need to listen to everything you're saying, or you know, it's not just that I need to make sure I, you know, have I completely listen to this over. Yeah. You know, it's it's something. It's I need to know your name first of all, right? Do I know your name? Right. But but the entire process of student engagement is what we said was the missing piece, right? If you can focus on improving student engagement in the classroom, that is going to get you to improved learning outcomes. Wow. Right? And it sounds like common sense. It's, it's a very nuanced. It's hard, right? It's really hard. Because imagine even in a high-end school, in a classroom, even if you take, you know, a school which has, a classroom which has 25 kids, right? What are the tactics, the pedagogy that that teacher is going to use to engage every single child and make sure that every single child is on their learning journey, right? Um, so deconstructing what student engagement means, right? And actually simplifying it and saying, okay, the what is student engagement, right? And that is what we are focused on as an organization, right? What is the goal? The goal is um, meeting grade level expectations on literacy and numeracy, right? Those two things full clarity, right? In our exemplar schools, you go to our exemplar schools, you see what effective student-teacher engagement looks like on a daily basis when you enter the classroom, right? For me, the litmus test of our exemplar schools is would I send Siddharth to the classroom? Would I send him to the school? That good, right? Uh, and that is really the litmus test, right? It's not just incrementally better, right? It is distinctly better and superior for you to want to send your own child to that school, right? Um, and on top of it, I mean, government schools are free. There are so many other benefits. There is so much land in Delhi and in urban centers as well. I mean, there's no shortage of space. But then the challenge is, so we've got the what and we've got the goal. Now, when you work at scale, you can do that in 10 classrooms. You can do that in 100 classrooms. At scale, in Madhya Pradesh, you have 100,000 schools. You have 95 lakh children studying in 100,000 schools and you have 320,000 teachers. How are you going to make... And let me see the match. You have 95 lakh kids in one lakh class. You have 95 kids per classroom, which is like very high. No, school. 100,000 schools. Schools, okay. So you have 95 kids in school. Understood. And there's just primary or there's all schools? All schools. 
so you've got predominantly primary, ninety percent plus in rural areas, okay. and so many of these schools in Madhya Pradesh, at least because they're in rural areas, are one to two to three classroom schools, schools. Like for twenty thirty kids sometimes. Like what do you see in me? Yeah, and then some schools may be much larger, yeah. and some may be model schools and so on and so forth. But on average, three lakh twenty thousand teachers or ninety five lakh kids. So you basically have thirty five kids to a teacher. Mota mota, but then you also have uh, variance, right? So you might have one school in a rural area where you've got one teacher teaching all, and then all you know maybe four grades, right? And all subjects. And all subjects. Wow. Right. So. Tough. So how do you then? Yes. I can't. So it took a long time to just get the scale of the problem, and still probably it's 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 a lot more complex than. Because then you've got you know ninety percent plus in rural areas. Then you've got tribal schools. Then you've got dialects. Then you've got you know language becomes a big thing. Then you've got you know infra. diversity of yeah you've got differing levels of infra, right? Uh, where do you start? Then you know issues around you know teacher allocation. All of that Books. stuff. How, it, yeah. So when you go into a state, let's say you decided to go to... Wait, wait, wait. Ah, so the thing is, when you think about scale... <laughs> what? <laughs> so then, when you think about scale, okay, how do you make student engagement happen in every school? I am the teacher, you are the student, thing is real, is real. In this conversation, go ahead, go ahead. You are the teacher. No, you are the teacher. I am the teacher. I'm, I'm learning. First time in my life. <laughs> I'm learning. Ah, I'm engaging. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> we'll codify this. Um, but uh, at scale, how do you make it happen? So you know the what, but then what is the how, right? So then we said, okay, we're going to distill it to three things, which are must-haves. One is teacher skilling, right? So if you want to make student engagement happen, first the teacher has to have the 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 skills and be equipped with what they need to be able to actually do effective student engagement. So things like you know small practices like cold calling or um, behavior management or you know just small things. Basically, distilling what student engagement is all about, and then saying at scale, teacher skilling is fundamentally important, right? Because if your teacher doesn't know, how will they implement? A second component of it is mentoring and coaching and real time coaching, right? So to the teacher to the teacher or the school leader, right? So why do you use school leader? Because you might have different terms. You might have a principal, but you might have a teacher in charge. You may go to a training program, and it may be phenomenally amazing. But then when you go back to your classroom. You're working with the same constraints, um, the same kids, and you're trying to bring all of those things that you learned, but you're dealing with the same constraints, resource limitations, all of those things, right? And it's very easy to go back to the ways of working that you had previously. How do you sustain that, right? And the best way to sustain it is, I mean, like you and I have learned, right? Just real-time coaching, right? Iteration, feedback, etc. So a lot of what you know, the way that the administrative layers are set up. In government schools systems, is you've got at the cluster block district level, you've got officials that are responsible for mentoring and coaching of the schools and the teachers, right? And their role is, for example, at the cluster level or the block level, block academic coordinator, right? So their fundamental job is to actually go visit the schools, provide feedback, and see how things are happening. I would say about seventy percent of their time currently is spent on a lot of administrative tasks because there is so much in the system, right? You have to look at midday meal compliance. You have to look at attendance, and so you're probably spending only twenty to thirty percent of your time on actual feedback, right? So we really want to flip that, right? We want to say seventy percent of your time has to be on academic support on 
and coaching and mentoring and feedback so that your teacher is those messages are getting reinforced because what gets measured gets done right so you may be a great teacher and you may have taken back all of these fantastic ideas on pedagogy you go in and you start implementing them somebody comes and starts observing your classroom and says ye kya kar rahe ho you know why are you making the children sit like this this makes no sense you know so unless you work with that layer of administrative officials and actually think about tools to do better coaching mentoring monitoring you can't have a holistic approach to systemic change right so you've got the teacher skilling mentoring and coaching and then you've got incentives and accountability right so at the level of policy at the level of you know rewards and recognition how are you making sure that as a system you're working on the right incentives and accountability mechanisms to make sure learning outcomes are front and center so that's what we then clarified as our model right and that's why we were like thank you drk because thanks to your due diligence we've actually arrived at this which is uh, extremely helpful for us this like regardless of whether or not we get chosen for the portfolio in the balcony and on the dance floor so when you're in the balcony you can have a very zoomed out view of the situation you can see what music is playing what's the vibe of the room are the people serving the food and the alcohol efficient enough etc that's all balcony level stuff on the dance floor you get to really feel the music and you can vibe with the people and so on but you can't see so there is a value to both and yeah good leaders have to kind of be on the dance floor in their companies or in their organizations and then kind of take a step back and go you know go alternate between the balcony and the dance floor and i remember very something very similar happened at bombay shipping company also in around the same time probably 2019 when six cents invested in us so drk was for you was six cents for us and nikhil who's a founder at six cents basically asked me a very very fundamental question right and i back myself and i think most of us do on being able to articulate a great story and a brand vision or whatever right and he said what does bombay shaving company actually stand for and i told him la, 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 la. and he said if i were to take 10 of your consumers and ask them to stand here and say ask them this question would they say exactly what you have said or would they say something as said that probably not like then it doesn't stand for it it stands for it in your head but it doesn't really stand for it what you are saying is a very founder slash manufacturer slash brand first articulation consumer should have a very different articulation of it right which is this simple so what does maggie stand for two minute noodles what does dairy milk stand for great chocolate what does uh you know whatever what does dove stand for moisturizing soap what does detol stand for anti germ and maggie can have like tomato sauce and soups and everything but they still stand for two what does it that you really stand for so for us the nikhil the, ha the nikhil question really forced us to say hey we have hair oils and beard washes and razors and shaving foams it's too we're doing everything for everyone and we actually stand for nothing we want to stand for something we are not brave enough to stand for something and not stand for other things because we are very revenue hungry which is something which you know like your learning outcomes hungry we were revenue hungry because that's what growth meant for us we had to really step back and say hold on and covid helped in a big way right? because it forced you to step back naturally you are in zero revenue the warehouses are shut people are not coming to office what do you do so focus on important and urgent strategic priority is it what do we stand for and we realized that consumers loved us for hair removal hygiene solutions so whether it was women or men when it came to removing hair off the body they loved us and we immediately could have tailwinds when we launch a product 
in other categories we struggled like body washing we struggled so we then kind of said hey i used your body wash ha would you want a few <laughs> so not i wish more people body wash is very price sensitive category so nivia fiama etc first of all moving people of soap to body wash is complicated so body wash chota hi hai waise bhi usme bhi hum log mehenge the so plus we were a shaving company so there were lot of headwindy you know category level things that we did could not move in that but trimmers flu razors razors flu women razors flu we were we were known as a men's grooming business we launched a women's brand siddha joined us to head our women's business it was counter intuitive that was 2020 20, our conversation 2021 but we started the business in 2020 she joined us once we kind of hit some kind of pmf we said okay fine we need a ceo for this so then then she came in but you're right someone asking you and and you're right in retrospect it sounds common sensical and kind of base but at that time it's it's so important to crystallize if this is what we do and the amount of angst that goes into it yeah. because it's important to get it right Correct. because the cost of getting it wrong is really high yeah, but you stick to it and then you invest yeah. in it and there are allocation things exactly yeah. and you stick to it exactly you take a bet and then you stick to it at least for 3 years Correct. right Correct. and then with drk we also had a conversation with mulago at that time where they were considering me for a mulago fellowship they have this mulago fellows program uh one is on you know climate and the other is on social entrepreneurship and they select 10 fellows every year and so again it was i mean these are stressful conversations right because every conversation is a make or break right it's an elimination process so you have one interview then you have another interview and you don't quite you i mean i'd heard of mulago i i didn't quite realize how amazing and pioneering they are yeah. um and i'm just like okay i'm just going to do my best and hopefully i don't know where it'll go <laughs> maybe it'll clarify for me what it is that we do <laughs> and whether they like it and yeah. how it resonates with a broader global audience right yeah. um and so the process of so mulago and drk both happened around the same time and so that year i was selected for the mulago fellowship right this happened this is all like jan to april right the mulago fellowship results you know uh happened in april drk decision happened around how much drk is it so drk has a, a policy of they choose the entrepreneur they support you for 3 years and they give you $100,000 every year uh and that was a lot of money for us right it is it's a lot of money. mulago is a fellowship so you go through the fellowship for a year and you get a grant at the beginning of the year you get a grant at the end of the year and because it was also so covid had just set in at that time right so the fellowship is usually in person it's a series of you know week long retreats in person so at that that time they didn't really know how the fellowship was going to play out but then i was selected for the fellowship i was the only indian that year um and i remember right after getting the call from them saying okay you've made it my second question was why like, what, what did you like about us right but you know it's a bit like okay what is because you want to find out right like what is resonating about your model because you're still looking for that sense of am i on the right track exactly, yeah. right some validation from folks who have been through been the journeys been before right uh but again i think both drk and mulago took a bet with us yeah. right and and you're i mean i was grateful for that bet because then what happened is um you were asking that question right like who supports you so with drk and mulago then that helped us understand the broader 
funder landscape internationally, right? Because sitting in India, um, having started with broadly CSR funding, figuring out scale, future strategy, it's really hard to figure out what are sources of funding globally and also to get a foot in the door, right? You really need to get folks to back you. Word of mouth is a huge thing. And so that happened in 2020. And that gave us, you know, some good momentum to kind of then make sure we had the resources that we need. Um, funny story, not a funny story. Uh, just, you know, again, this is like the, I, you know, what happens if you get hit by a bus and kind of anything can happen any day type of thing, right? January 2020, one of the organizations, CSR, that had said they will, you know, fund our teacher training program, uh, their board suddenly shifted away from education. Um, and we thought the funding was sorted and committed, right? Suddenly, December, we had planned, we had hired a team, planned according to it, all of that, right? Suddenly, 2019, uh, that money, we were told is not going to come in, right? That was about 60 lakhs. Right. So suddenly in 2020, I'm looking at the finances and I'm like, okay, <laughs> how much cash flow do we have right now? Right. Uh, how much can we sustain? Um, we can't, we, you know, there is no way that we can, you know, resource back any of our schools. Right. These are kids who are studying in the schools. You can't take it back. You can't, you can't uh, disinvest you from a school. A way. You have to find a way. Right? And we had maybe, you know, two months of cash flow at that time. And we had a team of probably about 40, 50 people, right? So you're basically writing up proposals for 10 lakhs. You're pulling out, you know, friends and family <laughs> saying, you know, how do I get, you know, at least enough coverage to last me for a couple of months until I get my decision from X, Y, and Z, right? Because every funding decision has a, you know, time period of 6 to 12 months, right? So it's not like everything. everything was crazy. Everything was kind of people are just holding. So this is yeah. So this is Jan twenty twenty, right? And that year, uh, so so Ramesh kind of makes a contribution to people uh, every year, right? And you know, I had shared with Ramesh that you know things are not, <laughs> you know, we need to figure this out. Yeah. And that year, he said, okay, why don't you take two years of my financial support in one year? And that tidied us. That that you know, so it's what you said about uh, uh, Ritika, right? That matters so much because in that time of difficulty, having that support meant the world, yeah. right? And that is when, you know, you know that that person is going to be with you forever, right? That's what they say about investors. Even in for-profit situations, everyone will back you when you're flying. Everyone wants to fly, you know? Yeah. Backing you when you're on the ground and almost out is what differentiates great investors from not so great ones because especially assets that they see value in, right? So I com I think it's very commendable because 2020 was hard for anyone and for an individual to do it more than... Yeah, exactly. It's, it comes, he's a corporate salaried person end of the day. Exactly. For him to kind of table capital individually in a tough time is, is, is quite exemplary. So this is before. But knowing him, I, I can I, I can totally imagine him. Doing. But this is before COVID happened, right? So this is still Jan 2020. And this happened, this, this you know, severity happened because one of our committed funders had to pull out at the last moment, right? So we had still not scaled, right? So we were still kind of, you know, 
the 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 support from Ramesh helped us, and then you know DRK added us to the portfolio. Mulago Fellowship came through, so then we had a little more space, right? But I think that's the thing as a leader at that point when you can see that crisis, you just cannot afford to. Um, you have to you have to stay the course, right? That's when character sets in, and that's when you are just like, look, I'm going to make it happen, and you just have to go in with that, and either it happens. Or you, you die <laughs> trash trying. and burn. You, you <laughs> but die you die trying. trying. You die trying. You die trying, right? Um, and then COVID happened and school closures happened. And so in Madhya Pradesh, the entire district transformation effort that we had planned, suddenly there are no schools, yeah. right? So what are you going to transform? There are no more schools. Yeah. I mean, schools are not running. Right. They're not operational. So then we kind of pivoted very quickly and focused all our attention on the teacher skilling component of our model. So that could happen remotely. So that could happen. We took some big bets around how we're going to distribute it using, you know, Deeksha, which is the national technology platform for education, um, led to, you know, immediate success in the first couple of weeks. But there was a lot of careful program design associated with it, right? So it wasn't, so nothing that we've done has been that we have gotten lucky. A lot of it has been deliberate planning, uh, vision setting, and then, extreme execution you've basically taken every government school teacher in madhya pradesh and trained them through the, so the first year in 2020 was all digital and so we didn't have you know i mean to create a digital course imagine our team had never created digital courses right so they had always done in person training so overnight they had to learn how to create a digital course right now the what of student engagement and now the how through now I'm assuming now that schools are running is a combination of yeah. in person and what you guys built over the last two three years. So then, but you know, even I think for us, we always had our long term sights clear. I think that clarity of thought was always there, right? So even in 2020, it was never short term. It was not we stop at digital. We always wanted to think about what does teacher professional development mean? How do we re-architect and reimagine teacher professional development? What are the components of that? Because this is a three year strategy. It's not a one year play, right? It's not just a COVID response. That's incredible. But truly, it's been, it's it's been genuinely, it's just been a phenomenal team. So last year, you know, we went from 90 at the beginning of the year to 150 when we closed the year. Um, our grant income went from 11 crores to this year ending at about 25 crores. So now we are like mid to large nonprofit, right? Which yeah, it's it, the years go by so fast, yeah, Shantanu. <laughs> this is incredible. It's incredible. I also like, of course, Viren head of GQ, um, and similar, right? You and like you, you remind you and Viren remind me of each other a lot because you, yeah. you are so passionate about what you do, and I think for you, opportunity cost is huge. You could literally do whatever you wanted to do in the corporate world, and make so much money, and to all of that but you're saying hey my life purpose is different even Varian's life purpose is to win Olympic golds for India yeah and his unnerving belief that when India wins Olympic golds communities and towns and cities kind of are uplifted at an infra level and at a spirit and emotional level and it's proven like it's happened in the UK it's happened in China it's happened whenever a country kind of took that and to see you kind of have unnerving belief that if you increase student engagement outcomes, 
at scale, you're able to truly make nation building impact because that's like what what better purpose of life could be there? It's it's actually fascinating to see. Also, Kruti, to be honest, like as a friend, sometimes because you're very close to someone, uh, and the relationship is very casual and friendly, you sometimes discount how much they've actually achieved professionally, right? Um, so I'm so happy that we have done this because now I can actually I have a far higher. I knew a lot of this, right? But when you kind of go through it in a lot more detail, you have a much higher appreciation. Now that you've done it in one state, two, two, the top of Delhi, Delhi, one state outside Delhi, uh, is this something that you're going to say, okay, now, now the this is where the S curve kind of takes off, and we need to go from three hundred thousand to three million. Sometimes success is seen as, oh, just go to more states. You know, just you know, we don't need to necessarily be executing these programs in each of the states, right? Our premise and our bet or our working model is for the government to ultimately be the doer, right? Not for us to be a parallel system that's creating impact outside of the government. Right. So from the get-go, how are you actually going to co-design and co-implement with the government, right? When we go outside of a state, then you don't have to go district by district, state by state, and firefight in each particular yeah. geography. So I would say nationally, probably a couple more states, but nationally also the Ministry of Education, Government of India, right? They do a lot of just, you know, innovation, uh, policy design, uh, intervention prioritization. So at the level of MOE, right, uh, if you can actually say, here is a blueprint for high quality teacher professional development, and actually take that to MOE and say, here's a blueprint and here's a track record of how it's worked in Madhya Pradesh and this is why it's innovative. This is why it's had impact, and here are the metrics. You share that, and then let MOE actually distribute it to the states, right? And then our role can be either as a technical support partner, or as someone who's bringing a lot of the evidence, or as someone who's helping another nonprofit and collaborating with another nonprofit or government partner in that state to actually help them implement it, right? We don't need to do it everywhere. And is Hindi speaking one of the filters? Like to say, we've done it in MP, which in Delhi, which are predominantly Hindi speaking, so. Northern India kind of makes sense to start with, and then kind of yeah, it's just you know, it's so tempting, yeah. Like when you you know, <laughs> yes, absolutely, right? Like UP, Himachal, Chhattisgarh, you know, Bajana. so many natural Haryana, right? everything about uh, exactly. Odisha, Maharashtra. But then you're like, yeah, I'm my mother is from Chennai, so I'm like, I know Tamil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know how tempting is it to go down south also, yeah. right? I identify with the culture, so you know. Everything is an opportunity, right? And so you're just like, okay, well, maybe we should think about that too. So, for example, even for us, and I, I keep drawing parallel between education and shaving, which is weird, but given that's what you and I do, um, we did not think of South as a market because physically we're in Delhi. Yeah. Right? Physically we're here. We are predominantly a Hindi speaking team. So, we will think about the Hindi speaking consumer first. They're very different. So down south, even plan from Pune, right? We don't we don't do very well in Pune. Um, we don't do super well in south because it's a mustache first set of state, right? So, but now I think we've hired a more local team. We're trying to figure out how to. We are Ashwin is our brand ambassador, the cricketer. Yeah, yeah, I see. He's, he's a Tamilian guy, right? So for him to like, so we're trying to figure out how do we kind of become. But it's it's hard. The same stuff doesn't work for us. 
So I'm assuming for you guys where it's teacher training, government schools, language and culture. Yeah, so language and culture, right? I mean, so so the thing is language, so culture, South India culture, I'm, it's much more comfortable to me, right? Mm. So it, I mean, I'm much more familiar with it. So it's not alien to me. Uh, but culture of education and... Culture of education, but you know, there's a lot of English speaking there as well. But of course, you know, Karnataka has Kannada, I mean, you know, AP has it. So there is, of course, you know, diversity and you have to figure out you know what is going to be your language of instruction and and all of that but um but the way of working with the government is pretty much the same in every I single state right the sop the way that you kind of set up the governance system the way that you actually co-design that the investment of time that you have to make in building that trust relationship it's the same formula and same blueprint every single state right so that makes it a lot easier to replicate right because you know what you have to do yeah. to be able to work with the state government okay. Uh, but then it's a question of, okay, then then you kind of figure out. So there's a lot of work that we probably need to do just around what does the next level org structure look like for us, right? If we're going to go into other states, what does that mean in terms of decentralizing, setting up teams in other states, in the south versus a Chhattisgarh, for example, right? Um, both will be very different. Yeah, no, I completely agree. But um, I wanted to come, come down to actually um, a nuanced part of entrepreneurship that a lot of founders have spoken about, which is you started this alone. And you obviously have gotten a great team and you're someone who carries people along very clearly. Like you, you refuse to say I a lot. You you say we even when you mean I. Uh, uh, but, and especially in a space like yours where sometimes government machineries are slower. Headwinds are different in nature. Um, uh, have you ever uh, felt like giving up? I felt burnout, for sure. I felt burnout, and um, is it constant? Do you work on it, or do you? Is were there one or two moments where it happened and maybe kind of gotten over it quickly? So um, there's this, you know, uh, wonderful MD at DRK who's been an advisor. Her name is Lisa Jordan, and once I was sharing with her, I was like, you know, Lisa, I'm just so burnt out. I'm, you know, trying to figure out uh, how to manage everything on my plate. And last year was a really busy one for us right I mean I mean it's like you're just constantly on that wheel right and you're constantly on that treadmill and there is no there's no stop button right <laughs> constantly going on and some level you know you're just like you just get hit by it right and you do it by just because of determination force of will no totally persistence and determination and willpower yeah exactly it's just so Lisa said that, you know, she was like, um, you need to identify it now and just work on it because uh, she once, she said that she had this, you know, previous boss of hers who one day called her and said, I'm calling in sick and I'm not going to come into work from tomorrow. She's like, Shruti, I don't want you to get there. <laughs> so, you know, imagine the burnout that that person was feeling for them to actually get to that place where they just called in sick and they were like, we're not coming into work tomorrow. Um, but yeah, so burnout, burnout is something that, uh, burnout is something that's real. I think what's also tough, right, is as, as a working mom, and uh, again, I, I mean, this is, I mean, this is true for, for everybody. I'm not, I'm not saying it's, it's only a woman problem, but 
you know, there are so many things you have to juggle and multitask at the same time, you know. So I have to make sure that uh, Siddharth is getting support and help as he is growing. He's now 13, right? I need to make sure that he is getting the support he needs. Um, I have to make sure that, you know, the house is running smoothly and, you know, things are sorted. And again, that's not necessarily easy to do, right? And uh, I have to be a CEO who is um, doing all of the things that are needed as an entrepreneur, building a, you know, rapidly growing organization, right? And there are so many things involved with that. There is partnerships, there is fundraising, there is program design, there's program impact, um, there is team motivation, hiring, functional strengthening. I mean, there's no end to how much you need to do, right? So then to be able to do those three things, add to it, you know, on the personal front, you know, you also have to have some time and space to actually also just have a personal space and life of your own, right? To get growth, some downtime. Yeah. And so, you know, all of it together, it's it's hard enough to have to multitask all of this stuff as a CEO. But then when you overlay all of these other things, it is, you, you're always on, right? Like you just, and you know, you had once told me, you had said this to me, uh, I guess a couple of weeks ago, you said, you know, I think you might be an empath. Yeah. And when you said that, I was like, yeah, actually, I might be. And then I was like, okay, let me, as usual, let me Google. <laughs> define how to start up, define empath. And the thing about being an empath, right, is that you feel a lot more of people around you, of energy, of feelings, right? So you combine all of this and then you overlay also being an empath. And just imagine the sensory overload and the brain processing that's needed. And that's what gets you burnt out, right? Because you're just... Always processing, right? And you, you, I think you want to play. I think I agree with you. Uh, we've had women founder CEOs on the show before, and I was I've been very conscious about not making it a conversation about women and making it a conversation about what they do and what they have founded and what they run, uh, which has been the case here. We have spoken about what you do at People and what People does, uh, uh, and you've been very kind of categorical about saying hey this is a, not a working mom thing it's a working parent thing but I think it's a working mom thing because Siddhu's relationship with you is only with you right and there are things only only moms can do to be very honest right and then you're in a space where I think in some shape or form you're taking responsibility for these 140 million kids or at least the 10 million kids you directly touch and the 130 million kids you don't touch and want to um and you're working in a system where dependence on government machinery is high, which itself, I think, comes with a certain amount of stress, biases, um, um, uh, most of the bureaucracy is male, right? So most of most of the political powers that be are male. I I I think it's very hard to run a non-profit organization in education as a woman founder who is a mom also a solo founder it's damn hard so i totally feel you man like i i don't i i i sometimes feel that in the process of equalizing everything and saying men and women are equal we kind of we trivialize the natural differences that are that exist be it from 
domestic expectations is at the relationship level, not at the role level, at the relationship level, right? So, I think it really is really hard to do what you do, but it's so important that um, there's no option so, but to do it. I am, so as a working mom, no, I, I actually think that women are very good at multitasking because they have to constantly multitask. Having said that, I think that, and again, I speak for myself, but as a working mom who's also a CEO, the guilt is constant. Constant, right? Because you have such, I don't know if it's, again, this is my own personal lived experience, right? But the guilt is constant because you constantly wonder, am I doing enough for my child, right? Um, and again, I've had a very accomplished mother myself, you know, family members have also done extremely amazing things, right? So there's a lot of inspiration around me. So there's always been that bar to actually achieve and be, you know, and do something with your life, right? But so so that's that's just a constant, right? That's just ingrained in me that there is no option but to work. I mean, that is just, that's the way I've been brought up, right? There is no option but to excel. There's no option but to, you know, make something out of your life. Um, when you combine that with being a mother, um, the guilt is constant, right? So you feel it all the time, right? Like You're right, because allocation is, your, like, we were just talking with someone. CEO's top job is capital and time allocation. So if your time allocation thinking is about to work versus mother, there's no, there's no right answer. So I can right. only imagine it being like a constant. Because also here you're responsible for another human being here. Like directly responsible for another human being, right? And that person is counting on you. And uh, Sidhu is a is a unique child. I mean, he is, so he calls himself chief cheerleading officer of people, right? <laughs> like he actually in his signature signs off as CCO people, registered as absolute return for kids, which is identity name. And he, you know, last time came to our offsite, he kind of managed to squirm his way into our offsite. He knows everybody, their titles, blah, 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 blah. Um, he's a special kid. Right. Like he is, you know, deeply invested in my own career and in the organization. Right. He he feels that it is, you know, he's yeah. he's equally invested in it. Right. Yeah. But, you know, the question is, to be honest, right? I mean, am I I'm trying to do all of this work, which like you say, there is no option like for me, right? It is incredibly important to do. Um, but the question that I have in my mind is, am I when you make those trade-offs every hour or every day? You wonder, am I sacrificing my child's success and achieving his potential with the fact that I'm trying to do this for so many other kids? Because this is abstract, this is real. I see this every day and I'm directly responsible for this child, right? I'm not directly responsible for all of these children. But yet I'm an enabler and the organization is a catalyst for helping all of these children. So that's a question that is always, I mean, I don't know if, it, if it's ever going to go away. Unless I stop working completely. I think once Siddhu grows up, right now is more formative. Maybe once he's maybe, in college maybe. or... Once he's a bit more, more independent. Yeah. But, you know, that's the thing, right? Like, you've got formative years right now. Yeah. So then, have you of helped course. your child be the best okay. they can be? Yeah. And But then at the same time, you can't spoon feed them. So you also have to let them be independent. I was pretty independent when I was 14 years old, right? Uh, my mother didn't have to tell me to study. I didn't <laughs> study. Right? So... Uh, but but yeah, there's that. But then, um, so it just makes me value my time 
even more and ruthlessly prioritize yeah. right so i think of my time in installments of 15 to 30 minutes right like how have i spent and then i do time audits regularly right isn't that stressful i have to do it because i have to feel like first i have to feel like i am earning my salary right like i i have to make sure that i'm adding value to the org right and if i'm not adding value then why am i doing what i'm doing like i have to you know disruptively add value to the org um but but so that's one thing but then um so that's why it's important but the second thing is i just have to f- if i'm going to give so much into work then i have to make make sure that i'm that i'm i'm meaningfully contributing to what i'm trying to do right because you know if i'm spending 10 hours at work how have i spent those 10 hours right have i spent it on the right things i think also for me you know a lot of energy i think i just have to figure out what my sources of energy are going to be right for me i'm very relationship focused right for me people really matter yeah. right so for me people are where i get my energy source and i take it very very to heart if somebody on the team is unhappy or if somebody is you know feeling demotivated like i feel like it's my responsibility yeah. to fix yeah. it yeah but <laughs> also the responsible also, ceo yeah but it's it's a it's a tough situation to be in right because you can't make everybody happy yeah. but um you try your best but it's also very draining right emotionally time wise all of that so you have to try and figure out okay what are the mechanisms you so so for me right as a ceo i feel like i've changed so much as a leader in the last 18 months to where i was 18 months ago right um do you i'm going to ask you a question because it's just come off the top of my head this is a conversation i had with sadda and she says you know i i think we should stop like i don't want to mother the organization or not i don't know it's a strange thing to say but i understood because you end up giving emotion like i think mothering an organization and in the context in which you used it was as managers or leaders do we end up becoming people especially you who are who's actually a mom or women leaders end up becoming mothers to their subordinates or to, to their team or to their organizations do you think that happens to you no the people are like kind of emotionally kind of sink themselves into you or no i'm very informal so people are very surprised when they can just walk into my office or send me a whatsapp message i remember there was one associate on the team who did not come into my office for the longest time and she would <laughs> gradually peep in and then she would be out <laughs> i was like anna <laughs> like do you want to talk to me <laughs> like but anyway then so there was that and then somebody once said yeah i just whatsapp to thee just check, check with her and they were like can we whatsapp her can we whatsapp the ceo and then i was like oh i'm the ceo you know so there's like you rec- see when you when you build something right i don't You're know what the pyramid yeah, yeah absolutely like i don't know if i really lived the fact that i was actually top of the pyramid yeah. or the, the ceo right i was like who's oh oh that's me <laughs> <laughs> that's not me fish <laughs> yeah right but then i think what probably you know what people probably like is the fact that you know they don't think that they're talking to the ceo when they talk to me or they don't think that they're talking to a ceo when they talk to me and that's the way i want it to be right yeah yeah i mean i that's the way i would want it to be i feel like everybody has incredible potential i mean somebody on the team who's working as an associate today could be a ceo of you know an organization 5 years later right and it's a question of and that's what that's that's what's important to me because i get energy from everywhere right so unless i have that dynamic um which is a conversation and not a hierarchy 
I don't get energy from that relationship, right? And uh, I usually don't have a filter, right? So I'll just say what's on my mind. And I think it's perfectly fine to say that because I'm comfortable with who I am and I'm not necessarily looking for approval or validation from anyone, right? So I'm like, yeah, okay, this is what I think. <laughs> okay, maybe I'm stupid. So one part of it is I haven't internalized the fact that I'm a CEO, <laughs> right? So it's a good thing. Could be, right? But the flip side of that is that Sometimes thing you, things you say can be misinterpreted or taken a certain way and you would never have thought that they would have been taken like that, right? So I think one learning that I've had is I actually have to weigh my words more carefully than I thought I did. So that's one of the downsides. Where <laughs> of being a CEO. <laughs> yeah, you, can't, you, you do have to have some filter. Yeah, no, I right? No, because pe that's the thing, no? Uh, and Toshan said this beautifully that uh, with CEOs, a whisper becomes a scream. Absolutely. Right, so some small amount of small amount, pata nahi yaar, runway kitna company ke baas, toh mein nega cash bada. It could be just amusing. Oh my goodness. Hey, no? Her outside. It's not just me then. No, 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 no. <laughs> it, for you, like for you, Sindhu still might be a three, four year old because you've seen him grow up, he's 13 now, but for you he's still a child. Similar thing with company, you still think it's a startup or a young company, but it's got its own politics. Yeah. It's got its own, you know, Corridor, con co you know, coffee, cooler, conversation, water cooler conversations. It's got its own everything. And you can swing things totally. from a spirit standpoint with just a few small things. So you're measuring what you say or even how you behave is so important. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I, I'm struggling with a little. Not <laughs> struggling with, but that's the equilibrium that I'm still trying to get to because, you know, I think... What I like about myself as a leader, right, is the fact that I'm approachable, is the fact that I can be honest, is the fact that when I talk to someone, I'm very authentic, right? I'm actually very sincere. at the same time? Yeah. How do you keep that? Because I don't want to change the essence of who I am, yeah. right? Because who I am is what has brought me here, yeah. right? And so, you know, doing stuff like asking someone to be on my board or, you know, being fearless in another ask, right? If I had a filter, I probably wouldn't have done that, right? If I was watching what I would say, I probably wouldn't have done that. I mean, in some conversations, I'll, you know, I use humor as a way of just breaking the ice and breaking stress, right? Yeah. Because I just think that sometimes we just take ourselves too seriously, <laughs> right? Surely. Like, if it's morning, but you have kids, like, yeah. nah, nah, nah. Exactly, right? Like, well, hey, but, you know, at some point, you're like, okay, at the end of the day, like, we're all human, right? We're all people. And I am, you know, for, for me, you are Shantanu, right? You're also the CEO of Bombay Shaving Company. But when I talk to you, you're a human. You're a you're a friend. You're someone that I will relate to on a personal level because we're having a conversation and I'm looking you in the eye and I'm talking to you, yeah. right? And, and it should end there. Right. And and so but and and but then so there's that which you want to preserve, right? Because I think that is what defines me. Uh and I want to see more of that in the world, right? I feel like that. I feel like a lot of us or a lot of people have become very transactional because there are boundaries and guardrails around how you should be and how you should work. And a lot of what you and I are talking about right now is feeding that beast, right? It's actually saying, no, we should actually not hug. We should actually not be warm. We should actually be careful about what we're saying because that is the way that things are. But then I think about myself and I'm like, no, why should we continue to, why should we not change things? Why should we continue to have them the way they are? Right? Yeah. Because, you know, 
every moment is an opportunity to change your mindset. Every moment is an opportunity to do something that makes the world a better place. So you have to have like some, yeah. you know, you, you need to have some filter. Yeah, exactly. But then, yeah, it's a tough one, right? It's yeah. a tough balance. I know, Kurti, like I think we've had sounders who are women who come on and kind of, for some, it's always about being a woman is so hard and I get it, like raising money is hard, you're discounted. There are VCs who have asked, what did you get pregnant? Crap like that, right? Um, and it, it, it really fuels the fire in them to prove, but also kind of makes it two times harder. And as you know, as we went into, into, into this break, I was thinking, you are the other end where you kind of say, hey, gender, like you, at least you try to put, like this conversation has not been about gender at all. It's been about entrepreneurship and building people. Um, but I'm fairly certain, like everything else being the same, like Siddhu being 13, running a 150 people organization that is people, two states, going more, all the board members, raising money. But a male parent or a father doing that would have been, like 2x easier and you've had a much harder time uh, but you you also seem to not want to acknowledge it publicly or I don't know whether you you're maybe an optimistic person or someone who wants to take it in your stride a little bit and say if I talk about that like there's nothing much I can change right so what do you like what, what's your view on that so I think probably because women are able to do it and not show the stress right at least I don't throw the stress Right? When inside must be there. Inside it's killing. <laughs> inside it is killing you, right? Because you're just like, dude, I am going to. This is like a pressure cooker situation. And I cannot blow up. Because there are too many people dependent on me, including my son. And I cannot show that side of me almost blowing up. Or at least I think the way that maybe I've been brought up, you just keep a lot to yourself. And you show that tough exterior. Or you just show the strength. And you say, yeah, I, I can manage. right? And then you build that muscle over a period of time. So you can manage, but it is it is a lot to manage, right? So, but I, I think there is, so what happens is that because women are able to manage on multiple, on multiple different tasks and they are not showing the stress, then people assume that they can manage and that it's not stressful, whereas also, it actually yeah, is. I've seen so many people glorify the superwoman thing. Yeah. My, my wife is a superwoman. She's a great mom. She does his job. And when I come back home, He's there to do this. La, 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 la. And I personally, I for for a while, I thought it was, you know, great that you're acknowledging that she's played. But over a period of time, I think I started realizing that it's a very manipulative thing to do. Is to praise someone when they're doing something extraordinary just so that they can keep doing it so that you can be a lazy ass. <laughs> you know? Uh, and it's not cool at all. Yeah. It's not cool at all. So I think glorifying the superwoman is... Yeah. I don't think I even heard that I was a superwoman. Right. That's the problem. Part of the problem also. Right. Because if you get appreciation for what you've done, then that itself is, you know, okay, fine. Somebody is recognizing the fact that I'm putting in so much hard work. Right. When you don't get the appreciation, then you just feel taken for granted. Right. You just feel like, or kitna karungi, or itna hogya, like, or kitna push karungi. Like, how much more am I going to be able to do? Um, but then also, See, there's all of that. And then as women leaders, there is also that part of us which, I don't know, I feel it a lot. But I feel like I've heard a lot of young women come up to me and say, you know, 
we we think that what you're doing is amazing that you know we we think you're absolutely wonderful you know we heard you on this um, interview and that's the reason we want to join people right and so you just feel the sense of you need to also motivate and inspire and you need to role model which again is a huge responsibility i don't know if men feel it because maybe you don't maybe there aren't enough male role models or maybe there are too many or there aren't you know so so the number of women leaders for example in the non-profit space you know you there're probably more male leaders right and so i'm also working in a space where in the social impact space i'm a woman ceo and so as as you're an early stage woman looking to establish a successful professional career you'll also look up to someone who's achieved that ceo position right you'll be like i want to you know i want to learn from kruti so that's another layer of responsibility right because i'm like i feel like i have to you know also live up to that expectation that i have and i also have to be there to mentor and coach you know younger women so that i have them believe that anything is possible and that they can be ceos right and that there is no bar uh on that note kruti i think uh, this has been deeply rewarding i think uh, not non profiting through sakshi of course i have kind of vicariously lived uh the life of someone at the gate foundation through her work uh but never really directly right uh and now you know being friends with you for so many years seeing what you have built through people has been another i hope next week but today was a very special conversation because we went deeper into elements of entrepreneurship in your space in the social um, development impact space uh with i would not have ordinarily done with you over uh, over a meal or when we meet casually so it's been eye opening i think for our viewers also i think this generation is deeply um i think cares a lot more about social impact than our state on average i think they care more than more aware you see them kind of aspire for roles um uh, in those kind of organizations so i think what you're doing for students and teachers we also do for people who want to study development and build careers there uh but most of all i think i wish you and the entire family at people uh siddhu uh and uh, all everyone at home uh the best uh and huge huge kudos for doing the work that you do it's deeply inspiring and thank you for sparing an afternoon and coming and talking to us here in the barber shop it was a lot of fun It was a lot of fun. <laughs> It's just actually good to talk about a bunch of these things and go deep on yeah. them. I do think that we should do a two point oh, where we go deeper on on specific aspects of um, being a woman in this space and the challenges it brings and what 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 one can do to kind of break out more. So thank you so much. We do have a gift for you, though. Oh, <laughs> hamper. Oh, wonderful! I finally get the BSc hamper. This is the Bombay hamper. Do I have to like take it? Yes, you have to take it. Ah.